0: Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning, good morning, good morning. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've got a great lineup for you this morning. But remember, you can email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio. Send me a text at 2057 this morning. First up, we've got Row Edge. Wonderful, wonderful lady. We're going to be talking about how integrity and fairness sports bill, something like that. It had all the right words, integrity and fairness, but of course, who defines integrity and fairness? We're going to find out for a uh what's happened to that bill. And as she tweeted this week, uh, there was a bit of distardly politics in the background. Also back with us is Tane Webster. We're talking politics explained, and we're going to be covering off I understand about the Maori seats and the Maori statutory board and the Auckland council and special guest, Mr. Ken ring, the long-term weather forecaster. I think the very first person in New Zealand to be properly deplatformed. Um, I think he was the first that just got disappeared down that memory hole. We'll be talking to him. We'll be giving him a platform. Oh, and we're going to learn a lot about the weather. And in front of me, I've got quite the weather almanac, which I'm loving. That's everything this morning. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Radley Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation.
1: with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission.
0: You're on Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Please send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at Got one of my all-time favourites coming up. Oh, I say that with others too, don't I? But it's Ro Edge, whose Twitter... If you're not on Twitter or X as we call it, you have to get on it. And a good reason for getting on it alone is to follow Ro Edge on Twitter because man, I just love your tweets, Ro.
1: Thanks. <laughs> I feel pressure now every time I tweet.
0: <laughs> oh, really? Oh, i didn't mean uh, to No, do that. no,
1: I don't. I'm just joking.
0: No, no, thank you. Well, it's 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 so interesting because it's quite hard to have a comprehensive view of the news. And there are issues that interest us. And, I mean, I used to read the newspaper from front to back. I used to listen to the radio news. This is long before I was in politics, on the hour. And certainly, you know, the morning report, the midday news, the evening report. I'd watch the news um, front and back. I'd buy the weekly news magazines. And I would read them through. I would read things that I weren't interested in because I thought, well, there's maybe something in here that I need to know. And I always felt that I was worldly because I read the news. I can't be bothered going online and sort of reading the news. I sort of flick over the headlines and it just drains me of the will to, to, well, to it,
1: read. Well, it's it's no longer news. It's propaganda. Yes. I mean, I, and I'm so, from a newspaper family, so I was similar to you. Like, I read uh, newspapers all the time. I watched evening news. Uh, Sometimes I'd record one and watch the other and then yes, watch the,
4: the one I'd recorded. Me like,
1: too. seriously, <laughs> I was a complete news nut. Now I am the total opposite. <laughs> well, no, it's not that, actually. It's just that I've worked out where I believe I can get trustworthy news from, and it's not our mainstream legacy media.
0: No. And so I find I'm very interested in the issues that you're onto this whole issue of womanhood and manhood and the difference between the two and the need to protect women's sport and women's private spaces. Um, and I couldn't be bothered sort of reading stuff or NZ Herald to find out what's happening. But I follow you on Twitter. And I get this overview of what's happening around the world, what people are saying, and what's coming up in New Zealand. And I do that for everything now. And I I follow people on Twitter. I've never written a Twitter post. And I find that that's now how I keep up. So thank you for that. I feel as though you're scanning the world's news and sources and curating it personally for me. (laughs) <laughs> and I feel abreast of the issues, and it, it's such a wonderful service. So thank you. I really do genuinely mean that. There are people that I follow on Twitter, and I not all of them, not all the kiwis, and you feel the need to thank them because um, you keep me up to date, keep me informed. And you write well. So thank you. I didn't realise that you had a news background in your well, family. not me
1: personally, but family, yeah. Yes. Um, my great-great-grandfather started a newspaper that yeah went right through to my mother's generation. My mother was um, – she ran a newspaper in Otohonga and Tukawiri. Is
0: yeah. that right?
1: Yeah, so she finally sold the family newspaper after generations, gosh, must have been about ten, fifteen years ago. So yeah. What was the big, paper? Big um it started off the King Country Chronicle and then it was
0: the Waitomo News. I remember the Waitomo yeah. News.
1: Yeah. Oh, there was the Ultra Honga Times at one stage as well. Like there was two newspapers and it went to one.
0: Yeah. And and who started it in your family?
1: Um, great-great-grandfather. In fact, there was oh, – look, I'm not very good when I get to the greats, but um, one of the my original descendants in New Zealand started a paper down in Invercargill, I think. So, yeah, started the first newspaper down there, and it's still going, I understand.
0: Isn't that something? Great-great-whatever. Yeah, no, I lose track. I'm not very good. <laughs> um, oh, well, you know, well, thank you for that. And this is what caught my eye and, and while you're on, because – Tell us, it was about what had happened with, what's the name of the bill now, the Act?
1: The Integrity, Sport and Recreation Bill.
0: It's a mouthful, Integrity, Sports and Recreation Bill. It's a standalone piece of legislation.
1: Yeah, it is. So what it was doing was bringing in um, the drug-free sport. So like, you know, making sure that there was no doping in sport, drug-free sport, but also creating an integrity commission to deal with issues that sports are dealing with on an ongoing basis. So, uh-huh. yeah, so try to give some protections to athletes, some channels for communication and and for helping them sort out issues within their sports so that they the sports had somebody to go to, but athletes had somebody to go to as well.
0: So this is um, picking up not just drugs, but also, I guess, the issue of young athletes being bullied, um, yeah. yeah, young athletes yeah, so not being looked so after.
1: Protecting their well-being, yeah. Right. And, and also, the apparently, this is the joke of it, their well-being and the fairness of competition, Grant Robertson said. Meanwhile, <laughs> Meanwhile, he allows males to yeah. participate in female sports. So really it's only the fairness of competition for certain groups,
0: not women and girls. So I get the idea of the bill, and you would say this is a good idea because young athletes can be terrifically abused yeah. and have been. And um, we can also have that sort of soft, what would you call it, corruption in sport whereby a favoured young athlete um, is allowed to progress because of politics, their mum or their dad or someone special in the sports and community, and another athlete could be better but be shunted aside. Um, we've all seen that happen at the top end of sport. So this is a good thing. But what happened?
1: So what happened? So the bill comes out and like during the review, like women were named in all the objectives and we were key stakeholders. Sorry, reminder come up. Um, You know, we were labelled as being vulnerable and likely to be high users of this commission and the bill comes out and women and girls are completely erased. We're not there. But of course, our rainbow community is. Māori, Pacifica, everybody but women and girls, right? And so we, you know, we... Basically, you know, women were central to the problem the bill was trying, purported that it was mm. trying to fix, and then mm. we were just completely taken out. So during this, the select committee process, Save Women, Sport Australasia, and, and a number of others Speak Up for Women, and a whole lot of other submitters that submitted in support of our submission, basically presented to the select committee, and luckily the select committee wasn't full of act- activists apart from Riccardo March, but the rest of them were actually quite good. You know, it was the first select committee under this government where I have submitted and actually felt listened to. Michael Woodhouse was on there. He was excellent. Um, and so when it went through the select committee process, they ended up deciding to re-include women or to include women and girls on there. And we're like, yay, we have finally had a win with this government. It was like, woohoo.
0: And I know that I'm guilty of, um, Overpraising you, but I to prepare for this interview, I read your submission and it was very good. It was clear, straightforward, and short. I think it was two pages. So, um, it was an excellent submission. So, you gave that. Did you give it in person or via Zoom?
1: Oh, via Zoom. Mm. Yeah.
0: So, that's a great thing now because you can go on to a select committee and Give a submission without actually having to give up a couple of days and fly to Wellington.
1: Yeah, no, it is. I think it's a really good process.
0: Mm. Yeah. It do, it's a really good process. Do you know who the chair was? Do you recall?
1: Oh, gosh. No, Does I shouldn't. Yeah, no, I can't recall.
0: And so you thought, okay, the select committee's taken this on board, women and girls are back in. And then what happened?
1: Yeah, and then it went to its final reading and all of a sudden, this also oh, during the, um, the parliamentary debates on it, Nicole McKee had actually brought up the fact that women and girls were missing and needed to be included, but also that a female athlete should be a commissioner, like basically on the, the Integrity Sport and Recreation Commission. To, to ensure that they had really good representation. That didn't happen. But just after after select committee, when it was just finally going in to be passed through parliament, Ricardo March added in that there had to be a rainbow commissioner appointed, compulsory rainbow commissioner, so that the rainbow community had fair representation. So they just when we thought that we had a bill finally that would reflect the rights of everybody and not be slanted or biased in any way, they stacked the deck in their favour yet again at the last moment with zero consultation.
0: And under urgency.
1: And under urgency, yep. So there was no ability for anybody to debate it. They just pushed it through as they do, <laughs> completely undemocratic. And, of
0: course, <clears throat> that's the wonderful thing about words like fairness and integrity because fairness and integrity to, do you, to you and I means – separate woman's category to men.
4: Mm.
0: But to Grant and whatever that other guy's called. Ricardo. Uh, Ricardo. To them, integrity and fairness means if you're a, I get it all mixed up. If you're a trans woman, i.e. you're a man with a penis. Sorry to use that word, but it's the only way I can get around this. But you th- say you're a woman, you're then a trans woman, right? right?
1: I refuse to use that language anymore, and that was a mistake we made at the beginning. So I just say males who identify as transgender.
0: Okay. So if you're a male, their their view is, that's a great way because it saves using the P word, which is a little disgusting over morning tea. (laughs) If you're you're a, a male who identifies as transgender, that's great. Thank you. To them, it's only fear and a matter of integrity that they can enter a woman's sport. So they upend the language, don't they?
1: Yeah, they do. And that's what they did at the beginning. And, yeah, we were guilty of buying into it as well and trying to be kind and considerate. And so we use their language. But by using their language, you make it hard to argue your case. Because if trans woman, like when you say trans woman, people hear woman. And if you say trans women aren't allowed in female spaces, then or women's spaces, you're like, well, why not? But as soon as you say males aren't allowed in women's spaces, well,
0: yeah, that's just it's the obvious, right? That is funny, isn't it? Because yes, I get that. Because and it's 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 been a thing that amongst everyday people who haven't followed this, it feels like just another step. On the road to treating everyone equally, that is to say, um, we're not going to lock you up because you're homosexual. You've got the same rights as everyone else, and everyone's got to a point where, well, that seems reasonable, whatever you know, whatever floats your boat, sort of thing. Not something I agree with anymore, but there you go. That's where we've got to. Then. This is just another step because you use the words trans woman. And when I test people on this, they don't know what a trans woman is.
1: No, and f- a lot of people think that trans men are actually men as well. Like People get yes. really confused over the language, but they've done that on purpose.
0: Yes, it's brilliant. Because yeah, it's it's if you're
1: then you won't speak about the issue. And if you don't speak about the issue, that allows them to just plough their crap through without debate.
0: Yes. Got it. A, um a male who's transgender. Yeah.
1: Got it. Hey, somebody that doesn't mind speaking about penises though, which I thought was hilarious, Winston Peters in yeah. the last week, basically coming out saying that no penises should be in women's spaces. And I was like, Hooray, finally a politician who has the guts to say what needs to be said, which has been brilliant.
0: I've been reflecting on that a lot myself when I as 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 they say in America, I'll circle back on that. Um because following that, Christopher Luxon, the leader of the National Party, upset me so deeply, I think it might be irrevocable.
1: <laughs> well it is for me. Him and Michael.
0: Yes, because he said that if you're thinking that Men going into girls' toilets is an election issue or a big issue this election. You're on another planet.
4: (laughs)
1: Now what I really hated about that though, too, is he took the whole argument to back to being just about bathrooms and women just being mean for not wanting men in their bathrooms. Like, you know, he made he took what is a really, really big issue and he tried to minimize it to just being about bathrooms to make it a non issue. And like that was totally insulting.
0: Totally insulting. Absolutely insulting. It was deathly. Yeah. And, I mean, he was already on my list, along with Mr. Seymour, i got to say, because of the mandates and the lockdowns. But, you know, I can almost – I can sort of understand that because it's complicated. But this isn't complicated. This is meaning going into my daughter's, my young girl's private spaces – And stripping naked. And not only stripping naked, but we know now, I didn't know this to begin with, they're getting off on it. Yeah, they are, unfortunately. It's a sexual thing, right? For a lot of these guys, maybe all of them, it's a sexual thing. So this is terrible. This is terrifying to me. And it's happening at, you know, schools. Now, right now. Mm. And Christopher Luxon says, ah, you on another planet.
1: Yeah, and Nicola now, Willis was no better. She was on a radio interview earlier in the week, and she basically said, "Look, it's not an issue. It hasn't happened to me and my girls. Therefore, you know, if if I don't see it, then I there's no point dealing with it." So she basically implied, and I mightn't have got that completely accurate, but that's what it sounded like to me. She basically implied that unless she she or her family were impacted, that it wasn't worth her spending any time discussing. Which was completely insulting.
0: Amongst men folk who are my era and who don't have young children now, and I'm fortunate to have young children now, they think I am totally obsessed by this because they haven't experienced it. Their kids are in their 20s or 30s.
4: No,
1: but their grandchildren are going to be impacted yes. by
0: this. yes. And when you actually explain it to them or give them a particular example, they are truly horrified. Mm. Now, I've got a theory, and this is where I circle back to Winston. I thought to myself, it's that great phrase that we have now about reading the room. And I thought Winston's read the room brilliantly, right? And Christopher Luxon has read it appallingly badly
1: yeah he's so focused on pantering to votes that he's unlikely to get that he's willing to give up votes that he already had
0: well my theory is this Winston amazingly <laughs> it's, it's a comeback kid he, oh, spent, he? <laughs> he, he spent a lot of time out of parliament and he's just had three years out of parliament and funnily enough even when he's in parliament he's not really of it he spends a lot of time outside of Parliament in the sense that, well, to put it bluntly, he's extremely lazy. And someone who's working hard, you naturally spend a lot of time in Parliament working on legislation, engaged in the debates, engaged in the wheeling and dealing. Winston doesn't do any of that. Uh, He'll be off somewhere. And, of course, he's been off somewhere for three years. And so he's out and about in the community. And Mr. Luxon, he's right in Parliament. He's a hands-on guy. He's a chief executive. He's like I was. You know, you 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 are in the machinery of of the bowels of the beast, in the government, doing the government thing, doing the politics, hanging with your advisors, hanging with your colleagues, sort of working out where everyone is. You you're in the machinery. And the machinery captures you, and runs you. And i got a theory that says there's been a big shift in New Zealand, out in voter land. I don't know, and I don't know how big it is, but I end up talking to people who agree with me naturally enough, you know, because when I meet someone who's, well, the RCR family are different to the non-RCR family. And so the RCR family is who I'm talking to, you know, not just on on this radio, but out and about. And we have shifted, you know, the the issues that we see are big. Isn't what the tax rate is? Isn't where the government's going to spend more? Spend less. We've got big constitutional, societal, and cultural mm. and societal issues like, do we allow men? Uh, into um, women's sport, yes or no? Uh, are we going to treat every New Zealander as equal, irregardless of their great-great-great-great-great-granddad's ethnicity, yes or no? The, these, to us, are we going to have, are we going to force Kiwis to take medicine that we think is a good idea as a government that they take, yes or no? There's three. Um yeah. If if you don't pick that up, you're missing a big thing in the electorate, I think.
1: Well, what's really s- interesting is, I don't know if you've heard, but the two major parties now, the, the polling rates for the percentages for the two major parties have never been so low. So that tells us it's not just a small group. No are disenfranchised and feel like the the National and Labor no longer speak for them or represent them. It's actually a vast majority of people because, yeah, they are losing support to minor parties. I guess the big risk this election is that we, that, you know, all these really small parties' votes are wasted on and we don't actually get the needed change in government, which is why it's such a shame that, yeah, we have so much,
0: yeah I'm not so sure about that and i'll'll I'll give you a view of that but let me just say all of these all the parties that are in Parliament now refused to meet with the protesters yeah and that protest was big and had a lot of support and so they completely misread it and that protest group was across political lines. There were Greens there, there were Acts there, there were Marxists there, there were libertarians there. Cross racial lines, across every line, there were um, deeply committed Christians, there were total atheists, there were Harry Krishnas, there was everything, it was a cross-section, but they, they were a big chunk. And these existing political parties just denigrated us Winston Peters being an outsider recognized the opportunity and I I struggle to say he did it out of principle if you know what I mean but because he's an outsider he could see it Christopher Luxon couldn't Christopher Luxon and David Seymour had a wonderful opportunity then but they played the they played the Wellington Beehive complex view.
1: Mm, Yeah, it was very disappointing.
0: Journalist view. And so that's what we're struggling with here, Ro. Um, So we, and here's my thought about the smaller parties. I think you should vote for the party that you like, no matter whether it has a chance to get in or not. Because it's like a referendum. And your vote's not vote regist- is not wasted just because your particular party doesn't get into Parliament. It's wasted in the sense that it didn't help to change the government or to keep a government, depending on how you look at it. But you've signaled, in the most profound way that you can, what you support. And for example, when I was in Parliament, there were a couple of Christian parties running with various names and together they might poll 5 or 6%. We would be sitting there as MPs and politicians and we'd be saying, gee, that's significant. Because there were always two of them, they never got over the five. But that was a significant vote to any party. That's a difference between national being government and Labour being government. Mm. Because MMP travels very finely. Two or three percent is a big win. Political parties looked at those votes and thought, we want them. They also knew that if the Christian parties, I'm picking on them because um, it's a good, definite example. I'm not just saying because the Christian could be a Green Party, it could be a, you know, anti-immigration party, whatever, because they're getting 5 or 6%. We know their true support is even higher than that because there's a lot of people not prepared to vote for them.
1: That's a very good point.
0: And so you'd say to yourself, whoa. um,
1: I'd quite like those
0: voters voting for my party. Yes. And so let's be careful about how we treat the issues that concern them. Because there are votes there. Now, if you're the Act Party sitting on 2% trying to get to five, it's a big deal. If you're the Labour or the National Party sitting on 30 trying to get to 35, it's a big deal. And then they don't dismiss them. So the funny thing is, I sort of don't buy the wasted vote line.
1: Yeah, no, I get I hadn't ever thought of it that like that before. I guess you look at it from the political side where, you know, how you Value those votes. It's yeah,
0: yeah. So, I mean, let's imagine this. Let's imagine we have five parties running around, um, opposing mandates and wanting medical freedom, and they gather up three percent of the vote. That's a significant vote. It's like a referendum. So, I, I don't, I that's 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 how I look at it. Um, because, in a funny way, in this election, we don't really care. Well, personally, I don't like this government, but I'm not excited about a change of government. No. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm so sick of the Greens. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, the, the, the,
1: but will it deliver anything fundamentally different is the question, isn't it? And yeah, I guess that's Well,
0: where it- I feel on. Let's just take this issue. It's just because, you know, the Sports Integrity Bill, or whatever it's called now, it's such a complicated thing. But, you know, we know what we mean. Whether, whether we're going to have, as of right, men who are transgender entering women's sports. I'm doing it. Men who are transgender entering That's women's sweet. sports. I can imagine that Christopher Luxon and the ACT Party make it this election. I think definitely Winston Peters is back. Okay. they may they yep. may not they may not need him. They get in and I can imagine they'll apply the brakes to everything. so there'll be the brakes will be applied to men who identify as transgender getting into sport and you'll go yay and the brakes will be applied to the further furtherment of co-government, you go, yay. But fundamentally, it won't be reversed.
1: Yeah, and well, interesting. Fun- ACT have said, like, you know, thanks to Winston coming out, ACT have said that the next parliament has to revisit the laws like the um, the Human Rights Act to basically specify that women woman and girls mean just that and that our protections are necessary in some spaces and places. And also the BDM. MR bill which is the sex self ID legislation yeah they said they voted for it at the time thinking it was a really positive thing but now they can see that there are problems with it that need to be addressed so I do have faith but it's only thanks to Winston and I wonder if ACT would have come out with this had it not been for Winston coming out so strongly.
0: Well there's again a a favour of third party support that aren't necessarily going to make it and be the wasted vote. Um. You feel as though because neither ACT nor National are putting a line in the sand and saying this is right and this is wrong, that it's all just going to be a bit of a handbrake because we've been rushing headlong over the cliff and we'll apply a handbrake and we'll sit at the top of the cliff teetering and then we know what happens. Mm. National and that get voted out, and on it goes. And the cultural slide, the cultural, the the cultural issues that we are in, have not been reversed. And that's why changing government is a good thing because it applies the handbrake. But it's not what I want. And that's why I don't think we should be thinking just in terms of a wasted vote.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I do wonder if this election it will be different though, because previous elections, you know, National and or Labor have had by far the majority portion of the vote. This time, you know, ACT could potentially get within sort of ten percent of of National. You know, they're going to be a much stronger um, proportion of Parliament. So, therefore the push to more for more radical change might be there because National have been guilty of just coming in, not doing anything, settling everything down, just, you know, putting us on a steady course but not correcting anything that the left has done that has been detrimental to society. And so we've just done this veer left for decades now. Whereas, you know, I do believe having a larger proportion of act within the government will mean that we will see more change, but whether that's going to be positive change for the, you know, the issues that we're concerned about remains to be seen.
0: I'm scared I'm going to disabuse you. Go for it. No, I love your view. <laughs> I love it. I just wish I shared it because picture this. This is a terrible, cynical thing, right? And so, but I I feel as though we've got to be blunt. We're on Reality Check Radio, real talk with Rodney Hyde, so it's going to be a bit of real talk. There's a very fascinating thing about MMP because it's all presented as the tail wagging the dog, and I'm anti-MMP, and I do get this concept of the tail wagging the dog. But the funny thing is, if you're a responsible politician, the tail doesn't wag the dog at all. So let's imagine this. Let's imagine that Um, National and Act get 60% of the vote. Whoa, they're uneasy. Let's imagine that National have got 40% of the vote of that 60 and Act have got 20%. Whoa, Act have got a lot of say, right? Doesn't work like that. Isn't that crazy? Mm. How crazy is it? Act don't get, well, they've got a third of the vote, no, half the vote of national. So you'd think they'd get a say a third of the time. Doesn't work that way. So this is how it actually works under MMP. You turn up there as David Seymour, Oh, Rodney Hyde, I didn't get to 20, but, you know, same thing. You turn up, there's David Seymour, and you walk into the room with Mr. Luxon, and you say, okay, let's talk Turkey, because we've got a former government. <clears throat> I was quite good at negotiating and got quite a good, I think. Everyone thought that I had um, negotiated an amazing coalition deal. And I pushed them extremely hard. But Mr. Seymour, so I've been in this exact position in the room with John Key and Bill English, negotiating a coalition agreement. And I knew this was my moment of ultimate power because once I had signed that coalition agreement, I was in government with them. And they'd get to have every say. And they would only ask me what I thought about a thing out of politeness or political cunning to keep the thing on track. But they were never going to say, oh, yeah, you're helping us in government. Therefore, you know, we will do a third of what you want against our better judgment. Or interest. So I knew at the point of, before signing that coalition agreement, I could get, let's say, five things. I can't remember the number. So I had to choose carefully, very carefully what were the five. And obviously they came out of what we'd promised on the campaign. But I couldn't demand ten. And I couldn't pull the pin. Mm. Because if I'd said, look, Mr. Key, it's all very nice, and I know you've been elected to this prominent position, but you can't form a government without our vote, and you're not giving us enough. At that point, I've just called another election. Mm. Everyone would be looking at you, and they'd be saying, oh, my God we just went through an election, Chris Luxon won, and now David Seymour is saying no to Chris Luxon and calling another election. And they'd say, why? And he'd say, well, I wanted the Sports and Act changed. (laughs) Or I wanted women, uh, men who are transgender, by law, out of women's toilets right? Everyone would say, are you nuts? Yeah. And what would happen is, Labor would be gathering in the Greens, would be gathering up their forces. look at these clowns, they can't even form a government. Act would head into the next election and be wiped out. Because you caused instability in another election. So even in your moment, even in Mr. Seymour's moment, of extraordinary power, Chris Luxon can't be Prime Minister without Mr. Luxon's uh, without Mr. Seymour's support. He actually his bluff can't be called.
1: What about the supply and confidence like sitting on the cross benches and just supporting the government on supply and confidence is that well
0: let's let's as they say, i got this great phrase from the White House circle back on that. So then you say, okay, We've signed up, and we think this is a pretty good deal, right? It's not everything that our voters wanted. But to be fair, we only got 20% of the vote, and they got 40 From that moment on, everything's a vote, right? You go into Cabinet, and it's not done by voting. It's sort of done by consensus. But you can read a room. And you haven't got the numbers if it comes to that. And then you have to go along with the majority. And the Prime Minister's got that room locked up. He's even got you locked up because he can fire you or she can fire you. Right? And the one thing you learn in politics is what power is and how to exercise it. And you don't need to get much of a margin to be able to push, throw your weight around. So you're sitting there and saying, Well, you know, um, I've got a good idea and it is an excellent idea, but the majority here aren't interested in it. It's gone. So it's a very peculiar thing about your lack of power. And ultimately, you say to yourself, um, How much do I go along before I pull, a, pull the pin? And again, we value stable government, and if you pull the pin because they didn't, they they put something in. I'll give you an ex- 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 a direct example. I was reforming the councils of Auckland amalgamate or making one council. I didn't amalgamate them. I made one council instead of nine, and I was emphatic that there wasn't to be a racial divide in voting. And every paper I took to Cabinet made that clear. Peter Sharples has a chat to John Key and says he wants this. And so John Key says it sounded a reasonable thing for him to give to the Maori Party. And I said, well, that's very well. And he advanced it. John Key was advancing it. And I said, just understand this. If you do that, I won't be minister. Now, that pulled him up short because it looked untidy and it was a big deal for me because it was so fundamental to my values and my party's values that we couldn't do it. But I could only really pull that once or twice. I couldn't pull that on a daily basis. And I won that one because John Key didn't want to lose a minister on an issue that actually was embedded in his National Party's constitution. Subsequent to that, we get, I can't remember a year down the track, and John Key's cut a deal with Peter Sharples to give us a Maori statutory board. And without, behind my back. And I was horrified and mortified. And I opposed it, I voted against it, I voted against it in Parliament, it was my own bill.
1: Wow, yeah.
0: But I made the calculation that the reform that we'd done was precarious, that it was gonna be tough to get it done, in the three years that we needed to have the local body elections and that for the good of the country, if you like, I just had to suck it up. And I did. And it made me realize you don't actually have that much power. The majority wins in politics. And so the ACT Party isn't going to be the majority and they have to create this tension with National without creating instability. And National can always call their bluff. And so National's the player here. And if National do this wishy-washy, lack of principle, i.e., they're sticking to net zero, for goodness sake. The economy's in free fall. People are budgets are killing them, and these guys are going to get rid of fossil fuels or, you know, like tax fossil fuels to death. Oh, my goodness. Make it tough for farmers. Oh, my goodness. Um, he thinks that, you know, keeping men who say they're trends out of women's sports and women's private spaces is an off-the-planet issue. He, the co-governments thing, I have no idea where he is. He seems to me to be all over the map and will go along with it. He'll be led by the nose and do just like John Key was. And then um, the country will be cut to pieces and racially divided even more with Chris Luxon in charge. He won't realize what's happening underneath him. And act will be unable to resist it. So then you say to yourself, well, how about we do this? How about we give them confidence and supply so they can maintain a government, but we vote on all legislation on a one-on-one basis. If you're at twenty percent of the vote, even six percent of the vote, I don't think that's stable. If Chris Lixon is smart, he'd call an election. And so I can't. Thank
1: you. Like Look disruptive and try to get your yes, vote across to him.
0: because. You can you can imagine it, right? You just uh, can't you can't plan, um, you can't work any legislation through. Um, Winston Peters, for example, has got a great skill at not committing to vote for a piece of legislation until the very last minute. And a piece of legislation might be two years in the making and the consulting with the public and the working it out. And literally, when it gets to third reading, he'll pill he'll, he'll pull his support. So you have no you 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 have got no um. You actually have like an Italian government situation that just keeps forming and reforming, and the whole story becomes one of instability, and of a prime minister unable to deliver. It's also oh, very.
1: Rather, you're not fooling me with much optimism about this coming election. No, well, that's why I
0: hesitated. That's why I hesitated before explaining this, because it is problematic. Uh, um, So, and then for the party that is giving confidence and supply, they're in a very weak position. And this sounds silly, but you're not getting advice and you don't have access to officials, And you can't ask for research to be done. We gave confidence to supply the ACT Party. Um, Everyone forgets these things, but it's coming back to me now. I'd sort of forgotten it. When Mrs. Shipley took over as Prime Minister for Mr. Bolger, she had a bit of trouble with Mr. Peters. And the Great Act Party said, well, don't worry about Mr. Peters, because if he goes out the door, we will give you confidence and supply. Sure enough, he went out, of, out the door, and we gave Mrs. Shipley confidence and supply, so she could stay as Prime Minister, which was a pretty cool thing to do. But... They'd come along, I remember Mr. Birch coming along and saying, we would like you to vote for this bill, and I'm going to brief you on it. And me and Richard Pebble went into his office late one night, and he gets up on the whiteboard, and he starts explaining this bill. It was to do with frontier and restructuring. I don't believe we voted for it. And he's explaining it away for like 30 minutes and uh, we walk out, and I remember walking out of the B. I and I was very new to politics, and I said to Richard, I said, I didn't understand a bloody word of that. <laughs> Richard said, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> How good is he? <laughs> <laughs> so Bert had explained this bill to us for 30 minutes, and it was just totally incomprehensible, and then said, well, are you going to vote for it or not?
1: And what did you say?
0: No, <laughs> um, but you know you 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 have you you get no if you're not in the room like you're not learning what these bills are about. Imagine imagine deciding whether you're going to vote for that bill that we're just discussing, the sports and integrity bill, and you're giving Grant Robertson confidence supply, and he will c- c- call you into his office. And you're busy as busy as busy, and you got lots of emails coming in. Uh, and he explains to you with a straight face that this bill is about integrity and, and fairness. about fairness. <laughs> and you think, oh man, that is so up the act party street, right? Mm. And then you'll say, um, but I got this email from a lady called Ro Edge, and she's telling me that, you know men who are transgender are going to be able to go into women's sport and, oh, no, he'd say, that'll never happen, and it won't happen because we're going to have these people on the commission, and don't be silly. Oh, God, that's a relief. Right? And he would do that with a straight face to you. So it's a very – because people in politics know how to get votes And they know how to exercise power. And they know how to get their way. And they know how to be persuasive. And so it's going to be very, very tough. It's a very, very tough balancing act. And, of course, you know, what you're trying to do is form a stable government with voters having a diverse range of views that are shifting. And so it's very, very difficult. It's not. It's not. It's not as straightforward as yeah. I certainly first thought. So there's my little rant on So,
1: so what I was told when I we went over to the international um, summit on women's sport, there was the analogy given that this fight to protect female spaces and fairness in sport is a bit like running a marathon. And so I've got a long way to go on this marathon. I was thinking that maybe we were, you know, getting nearer the end and common sense was starting to prevail, but I can see. No, I'm not
0: trying to put you off it. All all I'm saying is, you know, I I fear that there's going to be a big disappointment after this election.
4: Yeah, and and I think you're
0: probably right as well. And and but also too, that it is a very simple proposition. It's a yes or no proposition. Do men who are transgender have the right to enter a woman's sport or enter a woman's private space, yes or no? And at the moment that answer is yes. That's right. And, and the, the great thing about that is, is that they can fudge around about fairness and integrity, and you say, no, no. The question is, eh, 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 eh. it's the same thing. I think about race relations in our constitution. Does every adult have an equal franchise? Yes or no? Uh, it, it's not yeah. about co-governments or t or the principles of the. They can talk about that till the cars come home and you just bring them back. Yes or no? And these questions can be put to every MP standing for election.
1: Yeah. And, and so, yeah we've, I we've would do that. At candidates' meetings and they'll say, oh, yeah, no, you know, fairness for females is important in sport. And I said, yeah, but, the, but they'll say, but it's up to the sports to decide. So you've heard Luxon say that. I've heard Seymour say that. I think Seymour has realised now because I've drilled into him that, Governments created this problem through legislation, yes. governments need to fix it through legislation. Yes. Luxon still doesn't recognize that. He he seems to think that it's up to the sports to decide, ignoring the fact that, you know, Sport New Zealand has passed guidelines that prioritize inclusion, that is integrity and sport recreation bill now has a rainbow slant on it that will be that will disadvantage women and girls. And so until they unwind that and that takes government interference in it and protect women and girls' rights in our Human Rights Act, make sure that they're protected and not misinterpreted as they're being Mm. under under the Human Rights Commission of Paul Paul Hunt that we have now, then this isn't going to fix itself. And you can't leave it up to sports because sports have their arm twisted right up behind their back by government whose funding they rely on.
0: Mm. Um, And there's a certain sophistry happening here, isn't there? It's a great answer to say it's up to the sports when you and I know they're funded. Uh, they're supported, government provides the legislation under which they must operate. The sports themselves say, look, we're having to do this because of legislation, we're having to do this because we've entered this funding agreement. I heard David Seymour say, and I'm still, my head still hasn't settled properly back on my shoulders, say that um, no one was forced to take the vaccine. Right? Mm -hmm. And technically, he's right. No one was held down <laughs> and ch- no,
2: but they chained,
0: chained they to, the to the wall and the jab put it. But yeah. you had to lose your job, lose your house, uh, lose your career. Yeah. Um, no, no, but we didn't force you. You chose to take the jab. And so this idea that it's up to the sport, it's, a, it's an election year sophistry. I have just had a thought for us. You should um, you'll have supporters' rights through New Zealand. You should get them to email because you want it in writing. And lobby groups are very good at this. And you say to the local MP, yes or no? Should women who are transgender should sorry, should men who are transgender be able to enter a women's sports as of right or B? Uh, women's private spaces, yes or no. And not allow them it's up to the sport or it's up to the club or whatever, because they're the ones seeking your vote. And you can imagine having a dozen people in each electorate, they would get an MP to commit to that. A dozen people could do that before the election. You'll never get them to commit after the election. And then well, you I mean,
1: can. Any RCR listeners out there that would like to do that, and I'll put that in our next newsletter going out as well, which yes. I've been meaning to send out for the last month, but haven't had time yet. So
0: Be- because yeah. now's your moment of ultimate power. Yeah, and I do love elections. I do love democracy. We're just not very good at using it. And I, I just thought of it because it's a great. It's it's yes or no. There's no fudging it. There's no co-governance. There's no. Oh well, it depends on. CO two levels, or the UN, or the blah, 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 blah. no, yes or mm. no. We're asking you. You're seeking my vote in this electorate. Yes or no. And of course, um, all the ones that don't answer it are a no. Yeah. And you'll say that in your letter. If you don't answer this, you'll be registered as a didn't answer. Therefore, no. Yeah. You don't have that principle. That'd be wonderful. You know what will happen if you did that? Um, You've got to do it anyway. I <laughs> <yeah. laughs> just thought of what will happen. The political leaders, or their staffers more particularly, or their campaign managers will realise that's happening. They'll send a note to every candidate, do not answer this letter.
1: Mm, they will do,
0: yeah. And you'll get 100% non-compliance. How sickening is it? But you publicise that too.
1: Yeah, well, I already know that National Party members have been muzzled that don't agree with this.
0: Mm. Well, get it in writing because yeah. they'll hate it. They'll absolutely hate it. And, I mean, you've got a good run from Michael Woodhouse, who's a decent human being. I like him. Yeah. And I'm sad to see it's probably good for him that he's leaving Parliament, but I remember when he came in and he's a very decent human being and he gave you a decent opportunity and he listened. And there's a most MPs are like that. Funnily enough, and in this election campaign, you can unhook them a little bit, and make them uncomfortable, because they should be, we should be holding them to account on this fundamental issue. And when you read when you read what these poor women and girls have been subjected to, um it's horrific.
1: Mm, the gaslighting is just appalling.
0: Mm. And um, so we've got to put the bloke torch on these MPs. There you go. Well, that's how I thought. I, I feel as though I got you on to interview, and I ended up doing this rant about... Oh, but look, uh, it's so,
1: but the politics side of it is so interesting, right? Because we, and Because we rely on the politicians so much in order to fix this. So understanding politics and how it works is crucial for us in terms of being able to win this battle as well. So it's been mm. a really interesting discussion.
0: Well, it's a big machine. And um, and the machine is and poor Mr Luxon is sort of riding it and poor Mr Hipkins is sort of riding it and 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 they're not as directing it as as much as you would think. Can I tell you one little story? I don't know if this is talking out of school. Um, I'll tell it anyway because it's a funny thing about power and I I really like John Key. He was super smart. He was. Super charismatic, and he was even more fun one on one. And he was very truthful, and he wouldn't typically, like you know politically things happened, he went behind your back, I guess. but like he was very honest. there's so much he was a he's a very, very capable and special human being, and very focused. There's so much I admired about him. Um, and so I, I don't want to be derogatory of him because um, he was one of the great people I've met in my life. But we had a funny moment where Nick Smith was minister of ACC, and it had been opened up for competition, and prices had dropped dramatically, and people had been getting fixed rather than just treated And um, in the 90s, and we'd been involved in that with Mrs. Shipley and Mr. McCully. And then Lay- Helen Clark had got in and reversed it all and destroyed all the private businesses that were doing a good job for um, people who were injured.
1: You know, remember that time. It was, yes. it was good, good for business, good for those yeah. injured. Nice.
0: So we went back to the old monolithic, very expensive and very wasteful ACC model. And we had campaigned for doing a repeat. But, you know, we got only in that many votes and so couldn't pull that off. Nick Smith announced that he was going to be putting up the ACC rates. But, characteristically, his enthusiasm got ahead of him and he hadn't consulted with us, the ACT Party. And I quickly figured out that the Maori Party wouldn't support ACC rates going up. And so the only way that was ever going to happen, and ACC was broke, was if he got the ACT Party on board. So um, I quickly called an emergency caucus meeting, said we had this opportunity, and could they give me the power to act, because I needed knew we needed to act quite quickly. And we went into Parliament, and I sent a note over to the Prime Minister that he had a problem and we should perhaps talk. And so he and I went into the lobby, and I said, look, Prime Minister, I don't mean to be difficult, but uh, you've got a minister that's gone out there and announced that we're going to put these rates up for ACC, but you haven't got the numbers to make this happen. And he said, has Nick spoken to you? Nope. Oh, has he spoken to your ACC spokesman, Heather Hood? So he immensely realized he had a problem. And being a dealmaker, he said, "Well what would it take?" And I said a comprehensive review to open up ACC to competition. Hmm. This is a great light. He said, "Well, I better go and talk to the people that make these decisions <laughs> <laughs>
4: Oh, that's brilliant.
0: <laughs> I said, John, you're the, you're, the, you're the prime minister. And I wasn't a Christian then, so I said, you're the prime minister, goddamn." <laughs> he says, yeah, 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 but you know how it works. Like, i got to consult. And um, so it was very, very funny. So he went off and had to consult with the Jerry Brownleys and the Bill Englishes, of course, because, you know, in the and the team, which is true, right? And the point about that is all Prime Ministers are the same. They can make the odd captains call, but you now they actually have to keep everyone on board and in the tent. And then, Except, funny,
1: except when they're scared about winning an election when you see like yes, things go off yes, the, the off radar. The, and, yeah.
0: and then the funny thing was we spent a few days back and forth, back and forth, resolving the terms of reference for this review and who'd be on it. And we were literally passing notes on the back of an envelope to conclude it. And we got it, and we were going to announce it. And ahead of the announcement, it was decided that we should meet in the Prime Minister's office and prepare ourselves for the announcement and the press. and to all go up to the Prime Minister's office and everyone's you know going through the questions that could be asked and how the ref getting us all the same lines. And we walked out, and we're going down the lift from the Prime Minister's office in the Beehive across to Parliament. And John Key turns to me and he says, because he was being funny, you know, it's like it's not a negative one. He said, I don't even know. (laughs) I don't even know why we're having this problem, Rodney. And I says, what do you mean? He says, well, why are we even discussing this? Because markets and competition is what the National Party's all about. (laughs) Right. I said, yeah, we're just trying to get you to help you sort of implement National Party policy. He says, right, right. (laughs) So we were having a joke about this going down the lift. Then he goes out and does this press conference, and he's very quick on his feet. He's a tremendous guy, and he's getting interviewed. And I'm gobsmacked. There's probably TV footage of me sitting there with my jaw on the ground because these things had been so finely tuned And John Key got excited about, you know, opening things up, having choice and competition, getting prices down. He went way beyond the terms of reference to to where we'd started a week ago with wanting what we wanted, and it ended up being quite a marvellous review, which they never implemented. Um, But uh, I don't know why I got into that, but it's how – it's those moments when, you know, ACT will get an opportunity and when you're a minister you get an opportunity because you prepare the papers to go to Cabinet and when a minister brings a paper to Cabinet, it's quite extraordinary because you're so busy and the Prime Minister is so busy and officials are all over it but the politicians themselves are very busy, they keep you busy. They will look at it for downsides, that's all. And mm-hmm. part of their downside is, is this person capable? And once they learn that you're capable, you'll get a pretty much a free run, unless there's like a big red flag. And so in your portfolio, so if you were the Minister for Sport, you would have a dramatic impact, right? Because you say, well, he's capable, David Seymour's capable in this area, um, say. Or one of his MPs who becomes a minister, and there's no obvious red flags, and you give them their head, and so they can make, and you can only do that as a minister. You can't do that as supply and confidence. You're only reacting to what others do. So there is a great advantage about being in the tent too, Uh, and you can shape it. Um, But I, 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 you and I are looking there and thinking, you know, the 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 slide that has occurred is not going to be reversed for what we're talking about by politicians heading into the election saying those that worry about toilets are off the planet or B, those that are worried about sports, it's up to the sports.
1: Yeah, That's, and I think it's, it's a shame actually Mike Woodhouse has left because he was the sports, sports spokesperson for National and now that he's gone, who's going to be put there?
0: Mm. Well, uh, I'm sorry to... We did have a conversation, but it was a real talk. Row Edge, um, you're on Rally Check Radio, your real talk with Rodney Hyde. We're speaking to Ro Edge, who represents now it's Save. Tell me what the name of your group is. Save Women Sport Australasia. And there's a web page that you can go to, Save Women Sport Australasia.
1: Or just com or co.nz, and you can join our mailing list too, and then I, you will eventually get my newsletter asking for you to ask mm. politicians mm. that yes, no question. Right, I'm going to be inspired to get that out this weekend.
0: And also follow Ro on Twitter. And this is about whether we're going to have women's sports. This is about whether we're going to have men entering women's changing sheds and toilets. This is about whether we're going to have men in the women's wards and our hospitals. This is about whether we're going to have men in our women's prisons. This is about whether we're going to protect our women and our girls from predatory men. This is about whether we're going to be picking up the newspaper and reading about a young girl raped in a changing area. This is how dramatic this is. And it's also about this. It's about whether we're teaching our children at school that biological sex is not fixed at conception. That your anatomy is fixed at conception, but you have a gender soul. You have a gender identity that is entirely separate to your anatomy. And we're here to help you to identify your gender soul and your gender identity, because you need to be your true self, true to your gender identity. And we have drugs and doctors that can help match your anatomy to your gender identity. Yes, we will cut off your breasts, we'll do we'll make a penis and put it on you or we'll
1: sterilize we'll, you
0: so we'll you sterilize you children. and we will turn your penis into a vagina we'll give you bosoms and you can be your true gender identity or so
1: for for much less time than you would have lived if you had lived in your own body as yes. you as you are
0: and if we don't do this you'll suicide so get on onto the program this is Terrible stuff.
1: And this is. is like societal stuff. Like, you know, what do we want for our future society? And mm. is it this? I don't think so.
0: I don't want my kids taught. I don't want my little girl taught or suggested to her that she is not a girl through and through with every ounce of her being. Yes, she's a tomboy, but she's a girl and she can't be a boy ever. She can't grow up to be a man. She's a girl who will grow into a woman. That's who she is. And anyone, anyone who's trying to mess with who she is, is committing a mental and potentially physical abuse on them. That's how serious this is, isn't it? And
4: it's a serious fact we can't even
1: talk about it that we can't even hold an event, like Let Women Speak in Auckland, we can't even hold an event and talk about the issues that mm-hmm. are concerning
0: us. Mm-hmm. Because so you're in that. It's about
1: free speech as well. It's it's huge. And so when, when we have Lux and say it's just a conversation about bathrooms and no one's interested, that is the biggest bollocks out there. This is about so much more than bathrooms. It's it's about our fundamental rights in society to be able to speak freely and to have protections that are necessary for fairness and safety hmm. for everybody.
0: I have friends now who are homeschooling their kids simply on this issue because mm. they feel so strongly that if a teacher is teaching them that they, that they have a gender identity separate to their, potentially separate to their um, gender anatomy or DNA, That is a toxic environment that they want their kid to have no part of. And I understand that because I feel the same. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big deal, not as Mr. Lux would have it. And Winston Peters, once again, finger firmly on the pulse of New Zealand. Roe Edge, always, always lovely to talk to you. Keep up the tweets, and I look forward to getting your newsletter this weekend.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Rodney.
0: No (laughs) pressure. You take care. (laughs) You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Please send us a text 2057. Email me inbox at realitycheck.radio. We do live in a blessed world when we have the row edges in it, don't we? Thank you so much for listening.
2: This is Real
0: Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass, to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. Here on Radley Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text at 2057. Email me at inbox at Oh my goodness. I always have lovely people on the show, and I'm always excited to ha- have them, but I'm actually up a, up a notch. And I was so excited, I actually struggled to get to sleep last night because I have Ken Ring. Ken Ring, the long-range weather forecaster for New Zealand. And I've known of Ken Ring for a long time because my very good friend who is a farmer absolutely swore by Ken Ring's almanac uh, that would give a long-range weather forecast for the coming year. And it seemed to me, with my friend, it seemed to me that what he was talking about was impossible, but he swore by it. And so do, of course, do many farmers, fishermen, sports people, skiers, you name it, gardeners, and the almanac itself is stunningly beautiful. It's just a beautiful book to have. And uh, so he's an extraordinary man. And I think he was the first person in New Zealand to be cancelled and deplatformed. And of course, we've all been there since, <laughs> but he led the way. And so we have with us the indomitable, the wonderful Mr. Ken Ring. Good morning, Ken. Good morning, Rodney. Well, thank you for that. But I would tell your friend to stop
3: swearing because it's bad manners. Oh, what and did I? Um,
0: what did he? Ha- what did I have him say?
3: <laughs> oh no, I'm only joking. Oh, you said that he sw- he swore by my almanac. Oh, yes. But
0: no, I'm he, sure. when I say he swore by it, it was like a, <laughs> it was like a a, a biblical um, reference to him. It was. It was amazing, and of course, Ken. Yes. Well, there's a lot of New Zealanders too. who are like that. Yeah.
3: Well, I've been doing the almanac, the, the almanac since about 1999, and um, I think if they were were no good, I would have turned to something else long before then. But um, sorry, long before now. Mm. But. They, that they have stayed um, 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 uh, that they, they have stayed as a, a useful tool for the agricultural people. and that's what I always wanted to happen. Um, but also there are um, uh, events coming up which people like to take note of and prepare mm-hmm. for, and, and things like earthquakes and
0: things. And uh, and so it's useful for that as well. Well, we're going to get to that. Now, we're going to do this through uh, our, our show. How do people now yeah. buy your book? How do they get a hold of your book?
3: Well, they go to www.predictweather.com and all my books and articles and everything is in there. Or they can go to Facebook. Um, and dial up Ken Ring, Long Range Forecaster, and that that will get them into the the uh, the, the page there. Um, and uh, I mean, I don't have a a big um, advertising uh, kind of campaign. I I let the whole thing. Um, 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 uh, it, it kind of works by word of mouth uh, yes. mostly and um, so I, I'm happy with that. I mean, me and my small team ha- have been doing this since the very beginning and uh, we always wanted for the thing to be aff- aff- affordable and, um, and and so we, uh, we um, we like it to break even, um, and, and so um, uh, we're not kind of in it as a, a, a big business venture, no. put it that way.
0: Well, uh, a lot of people's livelihoods, and indeed their safety and their lives, rest on accurate forecasts, and so it's a big deal what you do, and I imagine that you have customers that return year in and year out, like my friend.
3: Yes. Yes, they are the main ones. I mean, the whole thing is really on a plane of knowledge which everybody should have, and that that's the way I look at it. It's not kind of something, something eclectic and... Um, And and only um, shared by by uh, like some a small group of people, but but this kind of thing, this kind of knowledge, should be all over the place. It should be in the schools and everything, but it's not. And I'm I'm um, I'm annoyed that it's not. And um, this. This way, I could kind
0: of share it around. Mm. Um, now, we're going to go through how you do it, how it's done, how you use the book, but I'd like to start at the yep. beginning, if I may, Ken. How did you get yep. interested and how did you get involved in long-range weather forecasting? How did it come about?
3: Okay, well, we can go back to 1970. Um, I was married. I met my wife at teachers training college, and, and, and we built a house in Kitarangi. And we had a baby, uh, but we wanted to homeschool uh, because being teachers, we knew that our kids were going to be better, better off out of school. <laughs> so, but, but, but also we wanted our kids to be free. And we wanted to enjoy them and not have somebody else enjoying them. And I wanted to teach them to hunt and, and to fish and be independent and and know how to survive and know what you could and couldn't eat uh, if you are in the wild. So it was against the law in those days, to homeschool, unless you lived more than 30 miles off a bus route. So, okay, we saved up, took us about a year, and we got us we got ourselves an old school bus. We thought that that was appropriate and we converted it to a house bus and that became our home for the next 10 years. So we were out there uh, nearly all of the 1970s and, our, and, and the way we lived was very basic because we were always in continually remote. Parts of the country, mainly on the beaches, um, but far from the towns and shops, and we found people living off the road. Sorry, living off the land, like us, people who you would never ever find in the city, like like drovers and swaggies and poor subsistence farmers. Uh, there, there were hippie communes. There were even real gypsies. Uh, who had Romany names like Grove and uh, and they were mainly ex circus circus people, but they were all kind to us because we were all living the same way. Now in the seventies there were no craft, uh, no craft fairs, no cell phones. You were mostly on your own, but it, it was the richness of the characters you came across made up for that. And there was a never-ending line of elderly folk who shared their knowledge about fishing and native plants and, and food that was available. And if you could, if you could put up with the social isolation, it was a good, a good education. So I fished every day. I remember sitting on a beach and thinking that the moon's forces go through the air and the water so they must go through the land underneath the water as well. And so they must have an effect on everything along the way, which we're not seeing because it's, it's in plain sight. I mean, the moon has no brain or eyes. So how can it tell air from water and, and from land? So like, it doesn't say to itself, I'm not going to do anything until I can feel water. And then I'm only going to produce a water tide. Obviously, there must be a tide in the air and the sea and the land at the same time. And 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 it turns out that the big tide is the land tide. So you've got a three thousand kilometers depth of land of solid land going up and down in a tidal way. Every day and everything, like mountains and rocks, everything grinds on itself like little cutting knives over thousands of years, which produce or which produces all the soil and all the silk, the, all the shells on the beach uh, turn to sand, and on top of that, on top of all that sits the oceans, which are only a couple of. From the thick if you average it over the surface of the Earth. So, in fact, there's only as much water as there is thin rubber around a party balloon. If you get a tablespoon of water and you tip it over a medicine ball, uh, and this is according to NASA, then that is all the water in the oceans around the Earth it's virtually uh, it's very, very small thickness. Um, so the land is the main thing. And when we think of the tide, we see the water level changing at the coast against the land, but that's all we see. So what is happening in reality is that the hills are expanding slightly and contract slightly. It might be only be a centimetre or two, but we have no, uh, we, we have nothing to compare it to. But it means everywhere has a small, has a mild earthquake every day. Uh, but I mean, w- w- there just aren't enough sensors to pick it up as earth movement. But if you look at the s- seismographs. You, you will see that they are moving all the time. Now they move more in times of perigee. Now I'll explain what that is. Perigee means the moon closest to the earth and apogee means that means when the moon is furthest away. And that and those two happen every month. So it turns out that you fished and planted mainly on the apogee because everything in the land and the sea is more calm and, and settled. But when it was the perigee, you didn't go fishing because all the fish headed for the deep because the water was too turbulent and, and the sand would be churned up and presumably that would get in the fish's gills. And then uh, a couple of days later, they'll return to the warmer water of the coast, and of course, by now they're ravenously hungry. So after, so two days after the perigee is a good
0: time to go fishing. Now, all of the. Severe Can I just interrupt line. you, Ken? I'm. Yep. I, I, I'm just. So this is. <clears throat> is this ancient wisdom? Did did people before you know this? Absolutely.
3: So there is the, the the perigee and the apogee was a thing that was taught to to the uh, the uh, Mariners and uh, 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 coastal fishermen. Uh, it's in their manuals. They learned all about that, and they learned that all the severe weather warnings weather warnings came at the time of perigee which is every two weeks. Uh, It it was a very common word, but now it's almost unknown. But the perigee is the reason for the king tide. Although people mistakenly put the king tide down to the full moon or the new moon, but that's mostly around that time also, but it's not what causes it. And so, I mean, uh, it's fairly obvious when you think of it. If the moon comes closer, then the tides are going to be uh, uh, um, uh, tides are going to be bigger, and they're going to go further up the beach. And so, so by then, I had also started to notice that the worst storms uh, seemed to happen at the time of the highest tides. So I realized this very quickly because we had to move all our stuff back and it would be pouring with rain. Well, when that happens about three times in a row, you start to think that there's a leak <laughs> and you start to think that a system of protection could be devised that covered a whole year. Well, everybody I approach seemed to shrug, shrug their shoulders. I mean, people who have been so helpful about fishing and planting Drew uh, blanks when it came to uh, this kind of um, uh, this kind of pattern. So it was up to me. I knew I had to start collecting records, and and I, also I wondered why all the books that I got out of the library didn't even mention the moon, except about the tides. Well, then I got onto astrology books, and oh my goodness, there was laid out everything about the moon that wasn't in the other books. And I had already studied the cloud somewhat. I could roughly read the sky. Um, it's actually easier in the country. Your eye travels along the line of the hills and then upwards, and your eye. Uh, has a restful and natural uh, way of doing that, whereas in the city, the houses on the the skyline seem to scramble um, the visual transition and discourages your eye from looking up. And maybe it's just that in in the town, we don't have to look up because we prefer the forecasters to do it for us. So anyway I got cloud uh, information from a children's book and and it was good uh, but I wanted to know more so I invested all uh, I invested in all sorts of weather reading equipment uh, the barometer temperature gauge wind gauge weather vane rain gauge uh hygrometer which is a thing for me- measuring humidity and in a diary I kept the daily records of air pressure, wind speed, air temperature, humidity, moon phases, and the weather that was just above me. Now, I figured if there was a a universal system, it would work uh, just above me, uh, wherever I was. Uh, I mean, gravity works on everything, so why not also on the moon and the tides? Um, so Isaac Newton didn't have to go all over the world dropping apples uh, I, I ha- had to have a scale of weather conditions and it was a purely subjective one but I decided on 13 different weather states and I allotted them a value and number one of course was a clear day fine weather uh, no wind, and then uh, along the, the in number six Uh, uh, was rain and right through to number 13 which was electrical hurricane and so on my scale uh, rain kicked kicked in at a number 6 and I kept up this this idea of uh, recording the weather uh, for 4 years every day was the first task in the morning last task before bed and I averaged what the day uh, would be described as. And then I entered uh, this with the other data. I was very scientific about it uh, because I had done science at university. And this seemed to be the way to go. And, of course, and I didn't have any anything else to do except catch fish. <laughs> and look after kids. So, yeah. So at the end of the first year, I it all out and my weather values up the vertical axis positive against the other variables along parallel horizontal axes. And it came as a big surprise to me that to begin with, the only factors that coincided with a weather value reading exceeding six was the moon stuff. So all the other factors seemed to have no consistent bearing. Sometimes it rained when it was cold, sometimes when it was warm. Uh, Wind speed and humidity similarly showed no pattern. Uh, And by the end of the second year, I could see the pattern repeating. So the the tide and the moon and the perigees were all important. And I realized that full moons mainly brought bad weather in the winter whilst new moons were the culprit in the summer. And it always rained two days after the new, sorry, after the full moon, no matter where I was. And on the full moon night, it was always crystal clear and um, and peaceful and the sea was always dead flat. Um, and it came to be a Uh, a kind of a law, And if there was rain about uh, over the new moon period, it seemed to wait until after the moon had set before dropping. In other words, if the moon is in the sky, it is always less likely to rain. Um, And then I began to predict the weather for myself and my immediate friends. I mean, you could just look up the almanac uh, the, alt- the nautical almanac, uh, which was available in most shops to see when the next perigee was coming. It was just marked with a P. Uh, uh, but, 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 uh, and, of course, you can always see when the full moon was coming. And the basic rules were, if it was a full moon, uh, there was guaranteed rain or change uh, uh, during the day uh, if the, there was a perigee and there was a gusty winds as well and if the perigee and full moon occurred on the same day well you got a double lot of bad stuff bad, bad weather uh, but if the perigee and the full moon occurred a few days apart then the bad weather hung over those days uh, but it was all trial and error. And I didn't yet know about declinations in the air tide. And that I discovered later. Although I would stand watching the sea for hours and wonder if the air was subject to the same dynamics as tidal flow. I mean, common sense told me it must be. But if so, why wasn't I taught it at school? Yes. Uh, but, but anyway, no one except my wife Jude believed in the work, and a group of us were all set to travel to Nambassa, uh, which was the big uh, music uh, rock festival. And so I looked it up, and I I noticed that I noticed that coming up was the full moon and perigee due to come sight just before the festival. So I said, no, no, sorry guys, I can't, I can't go because it's going, it's going to hose down. Oh, big, big laughs, big laughs everywhere. Uh, uh, and that, but they all went anyway without us. Well, as I thought would happen until torrential took what year was that can
0: you remember Ken uh,
3: uh, it would have to be about 70, 1975 1976 isn't that amazing I'm not quite, uh, but, but anyway um, it, the whole event was uh, a washout. There was no amount of "I told you so." Or um, to my critics' opinion that I just got lucky. Uh, but but I was getting to the I was getting to the stage at which I was absolutely convinced uh, that what I was doing was right. So there was a Sydney Hobart yacht race held the next year. Uh, it had. Maximum media coverage in this country, I think, was about the end of January or something,
4: and and many
3: of our finest uh, and most experienced yachtsmen were taking part. Well, here we go again, Uh, full moon on the same day as the perigee happened a few days before the race, and a violent storm at sea turned. turned what had what started an exciting race into a complete disaster. Uh, six people lost their lives. Boats capsized and went down, including one called the Spirit of, of, of Enterprise, and that was the uh, pride of the New Zealand fleet. Well, I was getting a bit fed up, and I was sure that I had found out something that maybe others ought to know about so I took my data into the observatory in Auckland see if it was known to climatologists and if so why yacht races were held at such daft times of the year and and I was told politely that my work wasn't scientific enough which might have been true Uh, but anyway they knew that stuff already oh So then I rang the TV news and the weather office, same response. We know that stuff. I said, if you know it, why don't you tell the people? Oh, they said, "Uh, we're not here to educate uh, anyone. We're here to entertain. No. Yeah, that's what they said to me. So I said, look, if I know that some danger is coming, and I didn't tell you, I could be locked up. Uh, But I think the truth is that they really know um, that only a handful of researchers and long-range forecasters uh, bother to investigate the lunar link to the weather. And maybe it's because everybody is supposed to know those things. Supposed to know these things, like the meteorologists um, say that the moon doesn't affect the weather, and that's that. But I, I, I really think it goes back to the beginning of Christianity, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but I think that that um, the the church, as it was uh, two thousand years ago, was a place where anybody who predicted anything was going against the idea that only God knows everything. Mm. And you were some kind of a false prophet and all the rest of it, uh, uh, because everything was um, caused by the hand of God and the will of God. And because they wanted they wanted to get people to come to church to find out stuff, and of course, when they come to church, they leave money in the plate. And so the weather was always kind of uh, part of the future, which you weren't supposed to go there. Um, but, and I think that attitude has persisted uh, for for um, much of the time since. But anyway, um, uh, once um, I went to a library, And I looked up all the weather-related disasters in New Zealand's history that I could think of. And I matched them against the moon phases closest to those dates to try and establish some pattern there. Well, amazingly, almost all the weather-related disasters that I looked up, and there were about 200, happened in the week of either the full moon or the new moon, and all siding with the parity. So I had it all down to a workable system, but my wife got sick, and that was the end of the, of the adventures in the bus. And that was about 1980. So back in Auckland, I, I, I moved slightly away from that. I had a series of jobs. I got involved with the homeschool federation. I became a tutor with kids with learning difficulties. I was a speech therapist and relieving teacher. But also I became a professional magician and a clown on the weekends. And magic had always been a hobby and a fascination. And I managed to come up with an act which taught kids how to enjoy math. And so I used magic to teach math. And I call myself Math Man. And as Math Man, I took the show to about a thousand schools all over the country, and I ended up uh, doing that off and on for about 20 years. Um, so it was kind of like, is it a curve? Is it a plane? No, it's Math Man. <laughs> he's, fast, he's faster than a speeding logarithm. He can leap, leap over quadratic equations with one bound using proof, justice, and the numerical way.
0: (laughs) How wonderful.
3: I had had a hell of a lot of fun with that. And I ended up writing several books for teachers and parents. And then I became international guest performer at the York Mathematics Festival in England. Uh, And I also got the QE2 Award for Performance in Schools in 1992, so that was a kind of, a bit of a deviant uh, 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 adventure. Uh, but I was still pushing my interest in the weather. And I used to go to the book fair in Frankfurt, Germany, uh, to try and, because I I, 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 I was writing a book about, uh, about the whole thing. And I wanted to wanted to know if there were other books around. Um, I was still doing the math man thing uh, afterwards I did shows in Great Britain which enabled me to study Stonehenge and other stone circles which I wanted to survey because it was obvious to, obvious to me that they were nothing more than weather calculators. Every village seemed to have one. It was only after that that I realised that there are stone circles here too in this country, obviously erected by an ancient civilization, but they are still here. But the people don't know where they are. There's a couple of them in, in the middle of Auckland, for example. So anyway, that, that's a whole other story. But then the internet came along and around 1996, and I had a website, which was probably the first to be highly sceptical of the global warming nonsense. And I was building up a, a following, which was sufficient to convince me that the almanacs might be a, a viable thing. So in 1998, I started to, to prepare one um, For the year 2000, and and um, and uh, I mean, I, I, I was doing all the regions, and I realised that everybody was booking motels and planning to go to, to go to Gisborne for the Millennium Sunrise, but all the weather maps seemed to indicate offshore winds and a trough moving up the country, which meant a cloudy morning. And the place to be was going to be the Chathams, if you wanted to see the rising sun. So it was going to be it was going to be a big disappointment for people. Well, I didn't know what to do, so because the Almanac was already printed out. So I approached the Herald and they printed uh, uh, which, which I'm very grateful for. They printed uh, a full page article written by a chief reporter called uh, Philip English, and and the, and and the article was almost word for word that I supplied. So it was newsworthy, as I was saying, don't go to Gisborne, you're wasting your time. Well, this was the 27th of July, 1999. It wow. was six months before the Millennium Day. So I think that's people thought, that I was either a nutter or an opportunist but I had to be sure my reputation was on the line almost immediately and and, um, and I sat for six months hoping that it was going to be true and as it happened it was exactly right because the Millennium Day weather uh, was absolutely cloudy and I got the map correct as well but in the days following the article, I was contacted by an enormous number of people who either used the moon failure themselves or could tell me what their grandparents did in terms of weather production, uh, planting and fishing. And one guy who wrote to me was this chap called Harry Alcock of Hamilton, who was an umbrella manufacturer. And he had worked out a system of when to pay for advertising in the Waikato Times for his umbrellas. He didn't want the ad to be in the paper when the sun was shining, obviously.
0: So, <laughs> that is so, that is almost, <laughs> that's almost a TV show, isn't it? The umbrella man is better at predicting the weather than the government forecasters. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, but that is so funny. The yeah, humble yeah. umbrella man knows more about the weather.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, Hamilton was just down the road from Auckland. So I shot down immediately and we ended up sharing our knowledge and that that was all fantastic for the pair of us. Because we, we didn't realise that we'd done everything by trial and error and we'd ended up with the same result. So all that kicked off the all man. I started uh, doing one for Great Britain, but I got ripped off by a publisher there and Hazard Press in Christchurch started publishing and distributing here, so it became a business. Um, So people used to say, um, you predict the weather, well, you have to be a magician to do that. So i say, oh, yeah, well, I have been... (laughs) And
4: then
3: they say, Oh, only a bloody, bloody clown would try and predict the weather. And I
0: say, oh, oh, yeah, well, I beat mean that too. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You were a clown, <laughs> a magician, and a weather forecaster, a long range weather forecaster. Just for people that. <laughs>
4: just,
0: just for people, just for people that are tuning in, you're on Reality Check Radio. It's real talk with Rodney Hyde, and we're talking to the wonderful Ken Ring, who is amongst other things a clown uh, and a magician, and a long-range weather forecast, and uh, a gifted uh, school teacher of maths and with special needs, um, an all-round good guy. That is such a funny story. I'm still catching up, not about the magician, the clown one, but the umbrella man in Hamilton. And the, the <laughs> um, um, umbrella man in Hamilton, had he picked it up from sort of ancient wisdom or had he worked it out entirely on his own?
3: No, well, I think he had just uh, kept a table, the same as me, and just noted things that happened around the moon times. Because people don't seem. I mean, look. I I, I used to go into the schools, and I used to say, um, "Who knows about the moon?" And everybody would put their hand up. Oh, that's good. And who knows about? uh, And and they'd all yell out, "Full moon! Full moon! Full moon!" And I said, "Oh, well, do you know about the full moon?" And they said, "Yes." And so I say, uh, "Who's seeing the full moon at lunchtime?" They all put their hands up. I say, no, no, you're actually lying to me. You never see the full moon at lunchtime. Okay? And, oh, consternation. And, 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 and I say, no, when you actually look carefully at the moon, you'll notice that it, it only rises at sunset and it goes out of the sky at sunrise. And that's what the moon does. That's one of the things that you need to start to take note of. And there are people in their seventies who don't even know that. Even now. And they've looked they've looked at the moon so many times, but they that the things that are in plain sight they don't seem to notice. I mean they don't seem to notice that the full moon always brings a clear night and so why does it do that it does that by clearing the sky it's actually the moon that clears the sky on a full moon night and so how does it do that well uh, when the moon rises um, um, there's cold air wants to come down cold evening air which is heavier Uh, uh, cold air is heavily is heavier and it wants to come down uh, to where our atmosphere is, but the moon has underneath it a a, a, a whole pile of air, which uh, which it it kind of carries all around the earth as it, as it uh, transit the transits the earth. Well, when it rises before I'm I'm talking about before moon, uh, the air under the moon. Um, stops the evening cloud from coming down. And when it does that, it stops the evening cloud from cooling enough to to actually show as clouds. So it, it tends to clear the sky just because it is rising then. And, um, and I, I mean, you think back to all the, the full moon's that you have seen, uh, you would have to admit that that it makes for clearer weather. And it was noticed by the sailors because they, there are all sorts of nautical sayings like the full moon eats the clouds and stuff like that, um, or it chases, chases the clouds away. Um, uh, but whereas the new moon the new moon day is going to be. Uh, it's going to be. Um, um, it's going to be. It's going to be pleasant. Um, uh, There's not not going to be um, clouds and stuff because the moon is in the sky, but you can't see it. It's against the gray of the sun. But the new moon day is nearly always rain free. Um, but if there's rain around, then the rain would fall, will fall in the
0: nighttime. And um, I remember, um, Ken, you were like a regular feature. Oh, well, you were often in the news with your predictions and you were very highly regarded, I guess, following... Your prediction of the what the weather was going to be six months ahead for the new millennium. Yeah, yep. you were quite. I mean, you were famous in New Zealand.
3: Well, well, um, I, I have to say, I was on nearly every show on TV, yes. and um, um, and uh, it, uh, uh, there was a show that called um, The Fishing Show with Jeff Thomas uh, on the, on Radio Live. I did that every Saturday morning. And, and the afternoon before that, I was on the uh, Radio Watia with somebody called Aroha uh, Hathaway. And uh, and I, I used to do the this... Mm-hmm. The same thing for her but but uh, what was interesting is that on this particular morning, on this particular Friday afternoon, I happened to mention that there was going to be earthquakes um, in the next few days in the South Island and people better beware and I repeated it in the morning with uh, Jeff Tom, uh, Thomas uh, because I recognized from the same notes uh, I was a bit dazed then and, uh, and so I said the same thing there's going to be a, a, a few large earthquakes in the South Island and, and just said hold on, hold on have you heard the news? it's already happened and I, I said what happened? and he said the earthquake of course it happened at 4.30 this morning I said no I was in bed about, uh, until about an hour ago and um, and I was quite blown away. But uh, so after that, I took more interest in earthquakes. And unfortunately, <laughs> that was the beginning of the end. And that's a whole other story.
0: Um, Are we going to do that uh, Can be, if you do that before that. But just to interrupt and take over for a minute. You're on Radley Check Radio with Real Talk Radio. Uh, with with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to Mr. Ken Ring, a, um, an amazing long-term weather forecaster. And I should point out, uh, you can get his book. It's the weather. It seems extraordinary <laughs> that Ken can predict the weather uh, for next year, but he has this almanac, which will tell you the weather for your region for all of 2024. And one of the most remarkable things about Ken, we're going to get to his deplatforming after this, but one of the most remarkable things about you, Ken, is that you predicted this year's floods and that occurred yep. in February. And not only that, you predicted them 14 years ago.
3: Yeah. Well, I also predicted the, the big rains that happened in Auckland in January. and uh, And it so happened that January uh, had the closest perigee for over a thousand years. Uh, it, 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 it and the last time that the moon was as close uh, to uh, to the whole Earth was something like 685 uh, AD, and the next time it would be as close. Is not going to be for another 345 years. So January's uh, uh, intense rain was a total um, was one out of the blue, and and I mean I didn't realise that 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 the um, um, the uh, well, uh, what was I going to say? That, that the sea would be as violent and the tide was going to be as big. But I realized it was big enough that I needed to put out all sorts of wet, all sorts of warnings to the Salgrash people in Raglan, uh, for example, that everybody should stay out of the water because the currents are going to be so big. They need uh, b- 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 because they held a rock festival uh, the weekend that it was going to happen. So I wrote all the, all, all these letters off. Um, I, I I I did it on the internet and I got that uh, uh, messages saying thanks very much. We'll warn our people. So apparently there were over forty. That's four zero. Uh, rescue saves alone in in that particular area. And so, uh, but all of last year, I was warning that this bad weather is going to happen um, on January and um, and that there was a cyclone, well, not really a cyclone, an ex-tropical cyclone, which was going to affect the country in February. And um, and that is the kind of thing that um, that I was known for. So um, I, I mean, in the early seventies, uh, in the sorry, in the early two thousands, the media here, the media here got more and more interested, and and I was everybody show. I even worked for Doc, uh, but there was bad blood. Between me and Niwa, which I still say stands for No Idea What's Ahead. <laughs>
4: <laughs> mm.
3: and, and then Channel Seven in Australia started to feature me in their Today Tonight show and I became their long range with a consultation every month. And so then I started doing it and also Australian almanac, and they paid me a ridiculous amount of money as a retainer, and that association lasted until 2015. Uh, meanwhile, some radio station in Ireland started getting my reports, which made me decide to do an Ireland almanac each year as well. And I'm still doing the Auckland one and the Australian one and the Irish one every year, and then. And then, as you mentioned, the Christchurch earthquake came along and everything changed. I didn't everything changed. Let's,
4: let's I, I
3: didn't mean to study but it kind of fell into my lap. And I could see what the moon was going to be doing and where and when uh, and what was going to happen at least six months uh, beforehand, and I knew that as a long-range weather forecaster, it was something I would have to warn about, because otherwise people could saying, "What kind of a long-range forecaster are you?" and my credibility would be shot again. So um, I, I was kind of I, I was kind of forced into it, um, and, and 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 the rest the rest they say.
0: Is obscurity. <laughs> <laughs> well, walk us through it because this is, and listeners won't have followed this, this is an extraordinary story. So take your time, Ken, and walk us through this most carefully because you had uncovered a pattern that you could see in earthquakes and you could yeah. forecast earthquakes to some extent. Okay. Now, now well, tell us all that happened in your own time and at your own pace. Yeah.
3: Well, it was September, of course, and um, and they had this big earthquake, and I felt that I, I felt that I had uh, met. Me, I felt that I had told people that one was coming, but I didn't really tell tell them much about it. Um, uh, but I could see that there was trouble ahead in February because the moon was coming around to the same position as it was in September, and it was going to take six months to do so. And, and I thought, oh, well, there's plenty of time. Uh, people um, uh, uh, are going to be receptive to the idea because of what happened in September. But the head geologist uh, came on to uh, Kasper and Ryan in the the national uh, radio and was featured all over the place. And he was was saying absolute nonsense. He was saying, oh, there's not going to be another one for three or 4,000 years uh, in Christchurch. And, and, and I said, I thought, what? What was what, what the guy talking about? And then somewhere else he said, there's not going to be another one for 500 years. And I said, oh, God, this guy is talking crap. He's a, he's a geologist, and he doesn't even know about uh, stuff that I feel uh, people ought to know about. So I put out uh, the first tweet, uh, which was, uh, um, I I forget what it said now, but but it it, it, it said said something like, uh, there's another earthquake coming in six months' time to Christchurch. Better beware. Um, And and uh, if people would like to know what that uh, tweet is, but they only have to look up, uh, look up my name, and and, and um, um, they will find it. Uh, so, but anyway, um, um, I sent out that tweet uh, because I was absolutely sure that in six months' time, uh, that there was it was actually five and three quarter months. Uh, but I said six months that uh, people uh, needed to be prepared, and so um, as it was getting nearer and nearer uh, to, to the uh, for February the twenty-second, when it got to be February the fourteenth, I put out another tweet, and it said, "The weather, uh, the uh, there's going to be a big earthquake in Christchurch." Um, uh, in the next few days, uh, I put it down to uh, happening on the 18th, but maybe give it uh, three days um, uh, th- three days error and uh, and people ought to look out for that. Well, of course it happened on the 22nd but, but, but by, by that time, I had a following, uh, on my website, and uh, and uh, and there was a lot of discussion um, around about the time I put this tweet out, and uh, uh, quite a few people didn't go near the CBD uh, during the week of the um, from the 18th onwards, and so they missed um, the brunt of the earthquake. And um, and so I was very pleased about that. Um, the earthquake, of course, happened. Uh, the t- tragedy was that uh, 185 people uh, were killed because some of the buildings were not up to scratch. But the people had had been warning about Christchurch getting an earthquake and these buildings needing some kind of. Uh, Structural uh, check on them, uh, uh, and it was well overdue. But anyway, anyway, it it, it happened, and um, and people then emailed me and said, "Oh, thanks so much. Uh, we feel uh, you saved our lives because we left town that day and as." Uh, uh, away a for that week just like you said so I felt quite blessed by that um, but oh then the, the the stuff hit the fan uh, because I was quite unprepared for what happened next because I didn't realize uh, that that the true economic, the, the true catastrophe that I contributed to causing was that people were not spending money in the Christchurch shops. They were spending money in towns outside Christchurch, like Timaru stuff like that. They were doing really well. And people were vacating Christchurch. And that was the true economic, catastrophe for the government because they were National Party supporters, the people who owned the shops. And the government took a really serious attitude towards me and all sorts of people. Um, And of course the media sided with the government and I was called a a charlatan and and this and that. And and, I mean I was only um, um, saying what I
0: believed. Now, Ken, just to to interrupt here, just to interrupt you, I do apologise, but you were being you were being attacked ahead of the earthquake, weren't you? Before the, Um,
3: no, no, I was attacked after the earthquake. Really? Because because then they realised that my website had been.
0: Uh, Predicting the, the earthquakes all along. My goodness. And, and here's the crazy and, thing, listeners. Here's the crazy thing. We talked to Mr. Kenring You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've got his almanac in front of us, the 2024 New Zealand Weather Almanac, which includes earthquake and earthquake diary. Uh, you can get it uh, by going to www.predictweather.com. It's an amazing compilation. Ken Ring, accurately predicted the February earthquake in Christchurch and warned people about it. The geologists and all the government experts were saying, no, there's not going to be another earthquake for thousands of years. Then they may have said hundreds of years, but there was nothing to worry about. Ken Ring accurately predicted it. And people who subscribed to his predictions stayed away from Christchurch and emailed him to thank him for saving lives, saving their lives, because they stayed out of the CBD. Ken Ring, who had been enjoying media, I would say fame, he was in the media because people were finding his forecast for the weather useful, and accurate. But his accurate prediction of the earthquake resulted in him being condemned and deplatformed, and the people that didn't predict it remained the scientists and the experts. Have I got that right, Ken? Yeah, that's right. And it's the most extraordinary was, it, it's the most extraordinary your head must have been spinning with the injustice of it
3: well yeah but also i i really felt that the science community had let down the public and i think that they thought that as well uh, because there was nothing in the training of geologists that actually gave them the tools to predict the next earthquakes that were happening, because there is nothing in their training that teaches them about the moon and its effect on the inner core of the Earth, which um, which uh, um, uh, which supplies a pressure within the Earth that uh, makes the Earth expand and contract um, in a regular way that brings earthquakes. There is nothing in the geologist's training that prepares them for it. And there still is nothing. And so when they're asked when the next earthquake is coming, well, they feel on the spot because uh, because they should know the answers. They actually don't. I mean, uh, all, all that they can do is uh put on white coats and rush over to a fault line and go uh, and 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 uh, rub their chins and look wise and say a whole lot of stuff about earthquakes that doesn't help at all and um and they don't really know when the, the next earthquake is going to appear that they they've got this crazy notion that the, the fault lines cause the earthquakes. Well, it's not the fault lines that cause the earthquakes. It's the earthquakes that cause the fault lines. It's the <laughs> earthquakes bursting through that make the fault lines. As soon as you, you say scar- that, it's
0: obvious, right?
3: Yes, of course it is. The fault lines are just the scars on the hillside where where the pressure... Has broken through, so it's like looking on your arm, looking at a scar on your arm, and trying to predict
4: where the next where the next is going.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I I am I'm listening to you talk, and there's no more closed mind than the closed mind of an expert is what I'm thinking, listening to you. These experts, and and it's the funny thing is, is that people can see it from the outside, and once you see through it, and if you have an open mind to possibilities, you're actually smarter, right?
4: Yeah.
3: Well, science has done a complete reversal in the last few years. Rather than being uh, fonts of knowledge and uh, uh, to help people and to provide information that people are going to act on wisely they they have actually um, clamped down on information uh, they have stopped information getting out i mean i I, I say that the that that um, the meteorologists make more money when they get the weather wrong than when they get the weather right.
0: Yes, because, because they need so more resources.
3: That's right. So nobody's going to throw
0: buckets of money at
3: somebody who gets the weather right all the time. No. They're only going to throw it to them, uh, uh, as you say, uh, 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 if you
0: our health system and our education system, when they're doing their worst, that's when they attract more money because they're that's doing right. so, You think, oh, they're not teaching our kids, therefore throw them more money. Uh, the health system is yeah. not treating people who are sick, throw them more money. And actually, the systems right. themselves are broken. Now, am I right, Ken? I'm dredging my mind here, and you've got a great sense of humor. So, thank you for that. You've given me and I hope listeners some great laughs. Um, Am I right that Nick Smith and the skeptics went and had a cup of coffee at the sign of the Takahe to prove you wrong ahead of the Christchurch earthquake?
3: Yes, absolutely. They had this big media event. Uh, there was all sorts of speakers, and um, and the whole point of the meeting was to was to uh, um, uh the whole point of the meeting was to debunk dis- you. Me. Yeah. Debunk me. And, and to show food.
0: and to show that you were wrong and there's nothing to be scared of.
3: Yeah. And all the time that they were speaking, there was uh shakes happening all around them. There were forty-six uh earthquakes as they were speaking, <laughs> and there were three big ones down at Wiesel and there was a huge one that night which was about a 6.9 uh, which totally wrecked the deputy uh, uh, chief geologist's house um, uh, but the government uh, completely under-reported it. Uh, fortunately I had the screenshot because all day I was sitting by the computer screen I felt sure that uh, something was going to happen, and I was just looking for some evidence. And and all of a sudden, at 9:47 p.m., bang! A screenshot uh, 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 appeared, which showed this seven-intensity shape. And and it only lasted on screen for about ten minutes and was whipped off again. Uh, obviously, somebody made a mistake, but I had grabbed it. And kept it, and um, uh, I, I think I sent it to you uh, yes. in an email. But um, but there was certainly um, uh, it, it happened. Well, the next day uh, it was all over the papers that oh, there was a shake, but it wasn't pin Ring shake. It was something <laughs>
4: else.
0: <laughs> it's a bit like it's a bit like the. The the guy standing up screaming at God, you know, that he's not real and getting st- struck by lightning. I mean, it was that <laughs> it was that amazing, and then saying, Oh no, that wasn't God, that was just bad. I mean, Nick Smith and the Skeptics like went up there to prove you wrong, attracted all this media attention, blow me down. There were these big shakes and earthquakes, and um yeah. you would think. You would think the media and the government would say, "Hang on." I mean, on the face of it, Ken, and this is why it's such a head turner. On the face of it, to a, to a, to a person like me, who is steeped in normality, really, and and you, you don't realise how propagandised you are or how regulated you are in your thinking, because. You just say to yourself, it's impossible to predict the weather a year ahead, otherwise they'd be doing it. And it's impossible to predict earthquakes, otherwise they'd be doing it. Blow me down. Here's King Ring predicting the weather, predicting the earthquakes, they're making a big show to prove that he's wrong, and all they did was prove that he was right. And, and their response isn't to say, hang on, maybe we should flick a bit of money King Ring's way, and get rid of the geological survey and Niwa. No, 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 no. Their response is to destroy you.
3: Well, and 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 the guy who was the, the deputy head geologist uh, got a thousand dollars. Got a hundred thousand dollars, which was the uh, prime minister's science prize uh, for going around Christchurch. Criticising me—that's all he was doing. So I, I feel—I feel entitled to half his prize money. But, um, but, but, <laughs> and his house got destroyed
0: but, by the Croatia earthquake. Uh,
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, the, f- the funny thing is that uh, at this skeptics' lunch, they were all. Uh, adamant that and 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 they felt that they had their proof that an earthquake was not going to happen that day. Well, if you can predict that an earthquake is not going to happen, you can predict that an earthquake is going to happen.
0: Yes, of course, of course. Yeah, but they couldn't do that, uh, and you did, no. Ken. Yeah, it's been. Absolutely wonderful having you on the show this morning. I I love it that you're still laughing um, because obviously there's the personal injustice, but you must also feel uh, deeply that literally lives could be saved if people yeah. would listen to you. Yeah, well, that
3: is my mission in life, to make people more aware that that bright thing in the sky is just uh, something more than um, more than a bright light and that it controls all the weather. It, 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 uh, you can see how it controls the weather on the full moon night. Well, it doesn't. Uh, on every night, it's just not as obvious, um, but uh, and it controls the tides. Uh, um, it it virtually uh, governs everything that we do on Earth. It's a it's an extremely uh, benign thing, but it can also be a very destructive thing, and uh, and. there ought to be a program in schools that looks to talking about what the moon does and what it is and uh, it's it's like a whole gap in our education
0: and in in the curriculum at school. Well there we have it. There we we have it ladies and gentlemen. We have the wonderful Ken Ring uh, long range weather forecaster. Great guy. Now uh, I love his almanac, and you can get it at predictweather.com. If you have an interest in the weather, if you have an interest in what the weather's going to do next month in six months' time, and a year's time, you can keep this on your coffee table, and it will tell you. You can also follow Ken Ring on Facebook. Go onto Facebook and Google his name. He really is uh, a Kiwi institution and legend and a humanitarian in terms of his mission, and a great storyteller, because what a story that a government minister <laughs> and the Skeptic Society went up to have a coffee to prove that it was safe, and an earthquake hit. Oh, my goodness. Um, and, of course, as we've learned, there's nothing that government hates more than a citizen stepping outside the narrative than that citizen stepping outside that narrative and being proved right. And that was Mr. Kenring's crime. You're on Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You can send a text to 2057. You can email me at inbox at radleycheck.radio. And remember, www.predictweather.com. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit with Rodney Hyde. And Tane Webster. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10am. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and we've got politics explained, back to the basics in the political scent, but with Tane Webster. Good morning, Tane. Good morning, Rodney. Well, we have our text, 2057. You can send us or email us in box at earlycheck.radio. And have we a question, please?
2: Yes, we do. So Lee has sent in a very good email. Uh, So he says, I think you should devote a large part of a program to the upcoming Auckland Council consultation on Maori ward seats. It is clear that many in the council wish to retain the IMSB and have Maori ward seats. You have an in-depth knowledge in this area and I think the council is not transparent with their information as most of the Auckland public have no idea about the power and influence the IMSB already has. Also, they are selected, not elected and are accountable to no one. I made the point that nowhere in the Western world or anywhere for that matter is political power and power over budgetary matters given to a group of people who are legally accountable to no one and then he he's linked have a look at this newsletter article which is from a really good website democracyaction.org.nz so i think start off with what is the imsb it's the what is it independent yeah, the independent
0: statutory board and it's a shocking shocking thing and i'll give you a little bit of history i was responsible for replacing the nine councils that were administering greater auckland with one And the idea was no infrastructure decision could be made for Auckland. And it was really gridlocked. You may recall, whatever you thought of the stadium, the central government offered Auckland a stadium and they were going to pay for it. And the councils couldn't agree on where it would go and it never went ahead. So a free stadium to Auckland was lost. But that was a very silly example, but it emphasizes the inability for Auckland to decide the big infrastructure questions that were confronting it. There's a lot that's wrong with local government um, and it tends to get sort of labeled onto the idea of this large city, but no one's suggesting we go back to nine independent councils or bickering over what should happen. That was even worse. In the process, of course, I made it very plain that there would be no separate Mary role that everyone's vote would be treated equally. John Key in the process came up with the idea promoted by Peter Sharples that why don't we just do what we do for parliament and we have Maori wards and Maori seats for the council. And this thing got quite a head of steam on it. John Key was really pushing it to sort of placate you know, the Maori party. And it got to such a point where I actually had to say well, you're the Prime Minister, with the Maori party, you've got the votes and you can vote for it, but I won't be minister because I can't in good conscience guide legislation that is going to be separatist. It's against every principle in my body and every bit of DNA in our party. And so proceed all you like, but it won't be with me as minister. Now, John Key was brought up short by that and didn't want to lose a minister sort of early on, and so he said, fine. And Peter Sharples went away very disgruntled. The funny thing was, I realized with John Key subsequently that that just meant oh. Peter Sharples was going to get something very bigger, big later on as compensation because John Key was there. <laughs> in and that's how the UNDRIP got signed. Right. Because he felt he had to give Peter Sharples something and he got the UN Declaration on Indigenous Peoples. So that was all right. It was a huge job, unbelievably big job. I had great people doing it and um, setting up an entirely new council. And But it was fought. Um, people don't realize how big it was. It was the biggest amalgamation ever attempted in Australasia or biggest restructuring. And the funny thing is we didn't amalgamate them. We built an entirely new council from the ground up. And everyone was sacked. We sacked every person in, um, who worked in a council. And when we re-employed them, we had two thousand less managers. So it was an extraordinary job. We employed everyone below a certain tier because we couldn't deal with that. But in the top tier, we just re- we didn't need two thousand managers across Auckland, which is extraordinary. But it was a big deal setting that up, and we were getting anxious because it could have all fallen over. And we had to do it within the three years because people needed to vote for their new council. And at the 11th hour, I got gazumped by John Key and Peter Sharples with this independent Mary statutory board. And they had prepared this legislation behind my back. And I was absolutely horrified. And they used the device... That I had said there'd be no seats. So they said, well, this isn't seats. This is a Maori statutory board. It only has an advisory capacity. And I said, we can't have this because it's divisive. And when it comes to a vote, this is even worse.
2: Yeah, well, how do they get, how, do they, how does it get decided, this, this independent Maori statutory board? How many That's members are on it?
0: It's decided in
2: the legislation.
0: Statutory boards are a common thing in local government, but not Maori ones. So this was going to be, you know, you have a statutory board to do a function. This was going to be a a Maori one. And the idea was, in John Key's mind, it wouldn't have any power. All the power would be with the council, and this would be just something that you'd consult and ignore. It's a very funny story how this transpired. (laughs) Uh, It's a very funny story. It shows you the danger of, identity politics. I'd forgotten. It's all coming back to me. It's like a nightmare. So we, um I was hoisted in a way because I had said, you know, there'll be no elected things. So I hadn't put my foot down about this. But I thought, well, the only thing I could do again is threaten to resign. But the reforms and the restructuring was in a precarious state. And I knew if another minister came along, that would be some weeks getting up to speed, like who to trust, who you rely on, where the issues are. It's not something, it was like a deeply embedded experience. More the people who, who I could trust and who I couldn't, I'd learnt that through the process. And I thought the wheels would just go flying off this thing, no matter how good they are. A lot of ministers much better than me, but I thought they're just not going to be able to get up to speed. So I'm going to have to lump it and suffer this Maori statutory board. I actually voted against it, my own piece of legislation. I voted against that clause. The ACT Party did. But the Maori Party voted for it and got it over the line. And then you had to vote for the whole legislation. It was just horrific. But then it got worse because then the Pacific Island community, they wanted a Pacific Island
2: statutory board. Oh my god. Well, that's that's kind of the trend though, isn't it? Because it you've is. got a it Ministry of Pacifica.
0: Yeah. yeah, and I said to the Prime Minister, I said, "Prime Minister, we did this to get rid of nine councils and get one with like a mayor and a council and they could make decisions for all of Auckland." Now you're creating Bosnia, you know, where you're going to have these warring tribes. Instead well, of the English. next one will be no. the
2: next one will be an in, independent Micronesia statutory board. You know, no, no. The out.
0: next one was Chinese. Pansy Wong. I am serious. Pansy <laughs> Wong was Minister of Ethnic Affairs and <laughs> came up with a proposal to have an Asian statutory board.
2: Oh, we have, we have to have one for it would be like a mini United Nations. So we have to. Have it, was. it was. It was. And they're like,
0: we were rolling around the floor, groaning and laughing, because here we were going (laughs) from nine councils to twenty-three statutory boards, racially selected, in order to run Auckland. And the weird, stupid thing was, as I recall it, was they got lesser things. So the Pacific Islanders didn't get a Maori statutory board, but they got an advisory council, and the Chinese got something that they could meet and talk to. I think, by the way, that's how. Mia Len Brown ended up with his girlfriend because there was an Asian group um that were to consult that the council had to consult with. And you'll recall that incident. That was actually <laughs> because Patsy Wong had decided that you had to have this an organization represent. It's unbelievable. So this, and of course, this independent marriage Statutory Board forms. They get appointed, I believe. With Ewe and consultation with the council, it then became a huge argument over who, what iwi could have a say and which iwi couldn't. And then I started to be lobbied by iwi who felt that the Nadi Fatuans were sort of Johnny Come Latelys to Auckland, and that they were being smothered and raped and pillaged yet again um, by this Maori statutory board. It was just a nightmare. And it's the whole point about once you leave that principle of one person, one vote. There's no solving it. It just becomes tribal um, war. And I'm not saying tribal war a la Maori. I mean, tribal war if it's Europeans too. One person, one vote is a very simple principle to adhere to. And when you depart it, there's no end to the division and the subcategories and the micro divisions that you can make to ensure representation. Of course, not satisfied with that, they want to have the Mary Statutory Board and their cake and eat it too and to have Mary seats. And it should be absolutely, it shouldn't even be debated. It's a bit like free speech. If you're living in a free and prosperous society, it's one person, one vote. If you're living in a free and prosperous society, there's free speech. It's not even a debate. If you're having votes determined by your race, you're no longer in a free and prosperous society. You're in a tribal society. You've already conceded the principle. And that's why it's so essential that the Maori seats be gone in parliament, the Maori seats be gone on our council, and a Maori statutory board be gone. But to speak like this now means politically that you're undermining the power of a very powerful lobby. Why are they powerful? Well, because we conceded the principle and we've got the Mary Statutory Board. They're not going to give that up without a fight. And also because we allow ourselves to be called racist for actually standing on the principle of one person, one vote, which is the total opposite Yeah,
2: we gotta we gotta stop caring about that, that insult Absolutely. that's used. It's just Absolutely you never don't get anywhere care. if you if you worry I don't about that. Care.
0: I mean, if it's racist to have one person, one vote, I plead guilty. But, of course, we're not <laughs> racist to not have one person, one vote. They can define the word as they like. It's yeah. Orwellian animal farm trick or that you you determine the word, you win the argument. So this should be resisted. But it's part of the deep cultural malaise that we've slunk into and which I'm party to. I was party to this... Um, maori statutory board for which i sincerely regret even my and my worst nightmare never thought it'd be as powerful as what it is i thought the council would be brave enough to stand up against it but of course they don't want to be deemed racist and so they concede enormous power to it which it shouldn't have
2: this so is in this article in this article from democracyaction.org.nz he also covers that there's the IMSB is not the only avenue at Auckland Council that ensures Māori are involved in decision-making processes. So there's also a Māori Outcomes Directorate. Did you know about that? No. And there's no. also a Tamaki Makaurau Mana Whenua Forum. Do you know about that?
0: No. Well, I do know about them, but they're nothing. Yeah. They were just things that the council yeah. came up with. Len Brown comes in. Um, and, of course, we have voted for this.
4: Mm-hmm. We have
0: voted for this. You know, we vote for it over and over and over again um, and we get what we vote for in a way. But also, to understand this, that there's a very powerful lobby. Yeah. And um, we're one person, one vote type of people and there's a very powerful lobby in the air and winning. And the council civil servants and the council politicians are very, very willing to concede this power because it gives them more power, and they can be mm-hmm. negotiating, and they just love it. They just love this stuff. They love it because it makes them important. It's like you're sitting More, around more bureaucracy. More mm-hmm. bureaucracy, more groups in the room, chatting, chitting, what should we do here? Oh, we better go and consult with the mana finema. Oh, we better go and consult with these guys. Oh, better do this and better do that. It's all politics, 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 rather than, yeah, we had our vote, Two years ago, this is the council that we've got. We've got to decide X. What are we going to do, fellas? Oh, us run off and, oh, we've got to go and talk to these guys. And so politics subsumes meritocracy and decision-making. Yeah. And so we flap around and flounder. Hmm. So we've got to wake ourselves up. The great thing is it's got so bad that more and more of us can see it. And when I was involved, it's very hard to argue against a hypothetical because, it's, mm. again, it seems so reasonable to John Key that you have a married statutory board. <laughs> he just thought that was reasonable because he didn't stand for the principle. And mm. you could never foresee how it would turn out. Now we can see how it turns out. Let's get rid of it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, yeah, it was a great, great um, email, and we'll try to get great someone. email. Thank on. you, Lee. Mm-hmm. We'll get someone from Democracy Action on RCR. To, I would love to, that. Um, I um, would um, love it.
0: that. In fact, we I should get them on my show because they could help me understand what's been happening. There we have it with Tane Webster. Thank you very much, Tane. That was Politics Explained, back to basics and the political sandpit. Please uh, send your questions in to us. 2057 or inbox at reallycheck.radio say uh, political question here and we'll put it up and Tana and I will discuss it and try and answer it as best we can. Uh, bear in mind, uh, we're not the sole source of truth and we're open to learning. We're open to understanding and I myself have been wrong more times than I've been right. So I'm always open and willing to accept alternative views and to learn. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You're on realitycheck.radio. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And so this arresting picture uh, caught my eye. You couldn't miss it. It was William Seale giving his valedictory speech in Parliament, and he came in stripped to the waist with an amazing piece of headgear on his head. Um I'm sorry, but it I did look funny. I sort of laughed when I saw it because it was like the contrast of Parliament, walking into Parliament um, dressed like that in this sort of serious place with suits, and then a guy walks in stripped to the waist with, it looked like he was a Roman legionnaire or um some... Well, Samoan chief, I guess, is what he looked like. So it's, this is the news report. Former Minister for Pacific Peoples, Arpeto William Seol arrived in Samoan style to deliver his final speech at Parliament. There were gasps and cheers as Arpeto walked into the room shirtless and wearing full traditional Samoan finery from head to toe, including a feathery headdress called a, I don't know how to pronounce this word, please forgive me, tuaga, reserved only for special occasions, a fine mat wrapped around his waist, allowing for the display of his, you're going to be listening for this, his pia, which had me worried for a minute. It's a traditional Samoan tattoo, only for men. Another show of cultural pride from the former minister. Quote, I'm in my traditional atai, atai as matai, chief of my aga, or family. Samoa reserved for special events. Such as tonight. Now, he's got all these things around his neck too. They look like bones sticking out. He looks quite the fright. And the headgear is all red. And if it didn't have the sticks poking up to the top, that like poke out, uh, what am I going to say? More than half a meter up high with red feathers across it and like a Roman helmet. He looks pretty funny. Um, But there you go. We live in this wonderful world. But there's a deeper point here. And it's this. We live in a Westminster parliamentary democracy. And a Westminster parliamentary democracy is the antithesis of a tribal society. We don't have chiefs who are lorded over and who are our bosses. We're citizens in a free society and we get to choose our politicians. And yes, we have a king, but he's a monarch that doesn't rule us. He's a monarch that gives his authority over to our parliament, over to the people of New Zealand. And that's how our Westminster parliamentary system operates. And people down through the ages have fought and died for our democracy and our parliament because they didn't want to be ruled by tyrants nor by chiefs. And they have escaped from chiefs and tribal life and what we call, oh, I've got to tread carefully here, tribal thinking, closed society's thinking where there's a boss who tells you what's what, to live in an open and free society where you can live as you choose and not have a chief or a tyrant over the top of you and where you get to vote. And so there's an incredible incongruity between having someone present themselves and our parliament as a tribal chief, as the antithesis of everything that our parliament represents. And yet we have so lost our way as living in a universalist, to use Professor Elizabeth Rata's term, where everyone is equal before the law, that we feel as though we can merge and are somehow being inclusive to open ourselves up to this display of the opposite of our parliamentary democracy, And no one notices. In fact, they all think it's rather wonderful and they cheer it on. But of course, we don't want to live in a tribal society. And yet increasingly we are. Why? Because we don't know what we have and what we had. And we don't work to protect our institutions by saying, well, it's very interesting, but that's not how this place works. We are a Westminster parliamentary democracy and we're proud of it. And when you walk into our Westminster parliamentary democracy, you respect it. You respect the people that came before you. You respect what it represents. You look around that wall, and you see all the battles the previous generations have fought and died for our parliamentary democracy. They were fighting against tribalism and tyranny. And so you walk into this place, you show it respect. A suit, a tie, that's what you're in a parliamentary democracy. Not tribal headgear stripped to the waist. That's real talk from Rodney Hyde on Reality Check Radio.
2: You've been listening to Real
0: Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. Here on Reality Check Radio. It's been Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you so much for stopping by and listening. Remember, you can text me at 2057. Send me an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. I love hearing from you. We had the wonderful Rob Edge on discussing that integrity sports bill that was anything but. Amazing, isn't it? And politicians use the word integrity and fairness run a mile. And I apologize to listeners because I ended up talking a lot, but Rose, a wonderful conversationist, and she brought it out on me. And so, mm, complain. I'll take the complaints. Uh, and then Tane Webster, wonderful, uh, on Politics Explained, discussing the Marriage Statutory Board. What a nightmare. And then, how wonderful is Ken Ring? What a story, I had no idea. Wonderful story of taking that old wisdom of the influence of the moon and honing it through observation. Endless observation. And then having the experts scream you down. And what a great story about the man with the selling the umbrellas. And even better, those skeptics and that minister proving Ken Ring wrong, only to prove him right embarrassingly so, and then for him to be disappeared from our media, because his predictions were proving accurate, the government predictions were proving not. And rather than duke it out on the platforms to leave it for us to choose, he was just shut down, disappeared, until RCR came along and bought him, gave him the public square back, and we could hear his story, hear his explanation, hear his understanding, and do something quite novel, make up our own minds, which is what we love doing here on Reality Check Radio. And I've got to tell you, I love his book. I've had it sitting here, and as people come in, they pick it up and they start looking at it. It's a wonderful, wonderful almanac for the weather. There you have it. Thank you for stopping by. This has been Real Talk with Rodney Hine on Radio. Talk next week.